Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. What I want to do tonight, I mean, I mean this morning, is, um, as Pastor Tico uh, just said, is I want to unpack a little bit of my story. And, you know, basically, I, th- I wholeheartedly and firmly and passionately believe that the Christian life is the best life. But sometimes it's not always the easiest life. And, you know, for me, at this point I'm in now, I'm uh, 28 years old. I have been on this journey with Jesus for the last 10 years. And it's been been a wild adventure so far. And I'm at a place now where I, I'm in my groove, uh, doing what I feel like God's made me to do. I get an opportunity to, to serve God, to, uh, to learn, to help people. I have great friends. Uh, I'm involved in things that I'm passionate about. I've figured out a few things, but I've still got a lot of things left to figure out. And a big part of my life is, well, life is never perfect, as there's actually a significant amount of joy and contentment and satisfaction. Yet for me, this actually hasn't always been the case. My, um, my story is a fairly broken story, uh, and there was times in the past where, yeah, I was just a very broken person. Uh, I didn't see much hope for the future. And, and when I looked forward, everything seemed bleak. And when I looked to uh, the present and the past, it just seemed to be filled with enormous amounts of pain. And for me, uh, as I entered into this journey with Jesus, there's a lot of things that I had to, had to figure out. And so basically, I want to share a little bit of my journey and some of the things I learned this morning. And I've titled uh, this morning, The Journey from Hurt to Healing. Basically, for me, my story begins, uh, like many of us, uh, with our parents and with our family. uh, Because that affects and and it shapes us and crafts our lives in a very significant way. And so basically, my parents, uh, they both, uh, before I was born, got uh, saved out of the Jehovah Witness cult. And then when I grew up as a young person, uh, before my parents divorced, my home was a, was a home that was ruled by fear and intimidation and violence and control and intimidation. And then when my parents split when I was seven years old, that changed the dynamic of our family. It was still really, really dysfunctional, but my brothers moved out of home. It was me and my uh, two younger sisters uh, left with my mum. And basically, I grew up the rest of my uh, childhood years and teenage years in a home environment that was filled with uh, worry, uh, resignation, uh, defeat. And for me, I didn't have a good start. And then my, my school life wasn't any better. I was, a, um, I was cheeky and I was a troublemaker, uh, but I didn't have the size to back it up. So I always, always managed to get myself in trouble. 
Uh, I'll get stood down from school. I once got kicked out of a music festival uh, for stealing. And I ended up getting in with the wrong crowd, uh, getting into drinking a lot, uh, doing other stuff, being a little bit of a, um, a dysfunctional, angry, lonely teenage guy. And basically, when I, uh, when I became a Christian when I was 18, I thought stuff would somehow magically change. And some things changed. I had a revelation in a powerful way of what it meant to experience the presence of God. I had a revelation of what true love actually meant. But I, was, I still had this tainted picture of, of who God was. I still had this tainted picture of what family is. And I had this tainted picture of how I saw myself and how I saw life and how I saw my future. And then fast forward on two years to when I was 20, I basically found myself in this place where I became really, really severely depressed. And when it comes to depression or when it comes to mental illness in general oftentimes, so much of it, there's many factors that contribute, but so much of it is there's this huge, huge weight on us. It can be external pressure. It can be, it can be stress. It can be uh, internalized uh, grief and anger and, and unprocessed emotion like it was for me that ends up really weighing us down. And then what happens is when the burden gets so big and our capacity to carry that burden isn't able to bear the load, what happens is we almost have these internal stress fractures and things inside us begin to, to give way and, uh, and implode and we're left with this chaotic whirlwind of emotion and confusion and oftentimes despair and, and, and worry and anxiety. Now, there's a famous American psychologist by the name of Rollo May, and he says, depression is the inability to construct a future. And I found that was so true for me. I was stuck in this moment of despair. I was stuck in this moment of feeling absolutely uh, alone and like I couldn't uh, get beyond where I was, that tomorrow wouldn't be better than today, but actually things would get worse, life would become more burdensome. And that was, feeling was overwhelming and it was immensely crippling. And I want to diverge away from my story for a moment just to uh, unpack a few things around mental health that are, I think are really, really important. One thing that frustrates me about the conversation around mental health in our culture, as so much of it actually flows out of a secular narrative, which basically says depression or mental illness is the byproduct of a broken brain rather than a suffering soul. It has this really one-dimensional view of the human being. And the thing is, the Bible speaks about us being body soul, and spirit. And so if our plan of treatment is only tackling a couple of those areas, 
then we're lacking a holistic and balanced and integrated approach. And I just want to unpack those three things briefly. Our body. You know, this is where um, pharmacology and, and pills and stuff can be, can be helpful to a degree sometimes for some people. Also, this is where genetics can, can play into things. And it's not predestination, but we can be, uh, it's not predetermined, sorry, uh, but it can be where we're vulnerable uh, to certain illnesses. And then also our lifestyle choices have a huge play. The environment that we find ourselves in, the decisions we make in our everyday, the, how we choose to cope can have a big play on our, on our mental and emotional health. So that's our, the body is our physiology. Next is the soul, which is our psychology or our psyche. And this is where therapy and counseling and mentoring and friendship and really this, the church, plays into our journey of recovery and help and, and comfort in these times of emotional distress. And then not only that is our spirit, our spirituality. And this starts with, have, with having a healthy theology around who God is. You know, some people think of God as this uh, cosmic killjoy, this cop in the sky, this grandfather, uh, sugar daddy, uh, whatever it may be. But people have different inaccurate perceptions of who God is. And that can actually hugely shape our mental, emotional, and spiritual health. And to understand God as a loving father, to understand that God's generous, that he has a sense of humor. Dare I say, yo, we're created in his image, that he's kind, that he understands us, that he wants to comfort us and be there and that he's close and he's not far off. So a healthy theology of God is, is critical. Also, our spiritual growth is important. Taking time to contemplate and reflect and spend time with God. Having a, having a clear conscience and, and allowing God to absolve us of, of the, maybe the guilt and the shame that we carry is so, so important as well. And I just think it's not until we have that integrated approach where we acknowledge the body, the soul, and the spirit do we actually see complete, holistic freedom and healing. You know, there's this passage in, in the book of Genesis in 32, chapter 32, verse 22 to 31, and it talks about this guy, Jacob, who gets, a, gets in a wrestling match with God, and it says, I'll start off in 22, uh, that evening came, and Jacob got up, and he took his two wives. He took his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. The Bible alludes to this being God. It says, When the man saw that he could not overpower them, 
he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was literally wrenched out of its socket. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied to him, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob answered him. Jacob, he answered. Then the man replied, you will no longer be called Jacob, because you have, but you'll be called Israel, because you have struggled with God, but you have overcome. Jacob said, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And it says, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. You know, the interesting thing in this passage is as Jacob wrestled with God, it actually redefined who he was, and God actually renamed him, being called Jacob, which meant deceiver, to being Israel, which meant prince of God. And there's something about this wrestle with God in our Christian journey that actually redefines us. It reshapes who we are and how we see God and how we interface with the life he offers for us. You know, for me, one of my greatest wrestles came when I was 22 years old. And at this point in life, I was uh, severely depressed. I was suicidal at the time. And then consecutively, over the space of 12 months, our family experienced this succession of tragedies. And so to start with, my, uh, my brother got quite sick. Uh, and needed a, needed a kidney transplant. He had basically just had uh, his first son and basically had to spend five nights a week away from his family uh, on dialysis while he was on the waiting list for a kidney. Not only that, we found out my dad had bone cancer and it was, um, it was terminal. Then as well as that, my, uh, the sister below me ended up going through a really difficult time where she attempted suicide. And then to top it off, my youngest sister was over in Kenya on a missions trip and was in a horrific car accident. This is the one that was on the news a number of years ago. Four people uh, died on the scene of the accident. And out of the survivors, she was the most, um, most fatally injured and was sent to ICU with uh, internal bleeding in her brain, compacted uh, vertebrae, fractured pelvis. And I got this call when I was on a leader's retreat uh, down in Tauranga. And I was walking along the beach and, and get this call. And I was just totally left speechless. And I didn't know, you know, what this meant for uh, my sister, how this would change the dynamic of 
uh, her life and our relationship and our family. We weren't sure at this point if, um, if there was permanent brain damage, if this would be a, um, a lifelong change in her trajectory. And it was a really, really testing time. The good news about uh, in some of that is my brother uh, ended up getting a tr- kidney transplant and my youngest sister ended up getting completely miraculously healed uh, of all that stuff, which was, which was incredible. And I watched that take place. Yeah, let's give God a hand for that. But for me, during that time, it was this, it was this place of wrestling with God. And I, I even got to a point where I was like, man, God, don't you think we've gone through enough as a family? Can you, can you give us a break? Don't you know that I'm already suffering and, and at the end of my rope? And then I went through this time where I just became quite disillusioned in, in my faith and I almost ended up throwing in, throwing in the rag on the entire thing. But I just couldn't get away from the fact that I knew that God was good and I knew that I knew that he existed. And I knew that if I walked away from him, I'd be living a lie and just totally denying the reality of, of everything I knew about him. And so I hung in there. And there was this one night where I was in this really, really dark season of despair and I was just lying in my room one night and just overcome by uh, grief and, and despair and, um, and, and inner turmoil. And at that time, I was thinking, man, I've already been on this road for a while. I've already been trying to do what I can to, uh, to escape the grip of depression and stuff hasn't been working. I still feel stuck. I don't think the future's going to be any good and so maybe I should just give up here. And then interestingly, I went to, went to sleep that night with this weighing heavy on my heart and was probably the lowest, one of the lowest points uh, in my life. At that time as well, it was interesting that as I went to sleep, I just hoped I, hoped I didn't wake up. And then the next morning I, I woke up and I had this missed call from my oldest brother and, um, and our family, just because it was quite broken and, and fractured, a lot of us were, we never learned how to express ourselves well uh, for a long time. <laughs> and so we weren't always the best at, at showing love or, or care or, uh, or understanding in a way that would, would make each other feel heard. And that night, that same night that I was feeling that way, he had this dream where he woke up early hours of the morning, and he was just like overcome by grief and had had this dream where I had actually uh, ended my life. I woke up and it was just so vivid and and real to him that he was just 
Uh, and he's not normally an emotional guy, but was weeping and overcome with, with grief and, and sorrow and had called me that morning to, to tell me. And then as I, as I called him back uh, a little bit later when I got up, I didn't know what, I, what, he, what he was calling for or what he was going to say. And he said, I had this, had this dream about you last night. And then he, and he said to me, he's like, don't you ever <laughs> do anything. Yeah, I, I love you way too much and I'm here uh, whenever you need. And I just felt at that point, I hadn't heard God's voice for a long time. I hadn't uh, felt God's presence for a long time. I felt desperately alone, but it was almost like God was sending this lifeline in a moment, just something to hang on to and to be like, this is not a coincidence. You know, even if I can't feel God right now, he's actually using someone, and my brother wasn't a Christian at the time, uh, to actually speak to me profoundly about his care and his love and his concern uh, for me. And so I decided to, to keep persisting on the journey. And I found a really important thing that, that I had to do, and, and I think we all have to do, is summed up in the words of as a Christian hip-hop artist by the name Lecrae. And he says, in order to nurse our wounds, we have to name our wounds. And I think we can't actually get healing until we put language to some of our pain and some of our past and some of the suffering that we've actually had to walk through. And I think normally what people, most people do, instead of naming their wounds, they deny their wounds. I think a classic feature of New Zealand culture as well is that we ignore our wounds. And then yet other people, if they don't deny their wounds or ignore their wounds, they medicate their wounds. And it so surprises me that people are willing to get ensnared in a cycle of addiction or, or brokenness or dysfunction. They would way rather go down that road than they would have the courage and, and the capacity to be vulnerable for a moment to actually ignite the healing journey. And so instead of denying or ignoring or medicating, I decided to name some of this stuff. And for me, this last 10 years has been putting language to some of the things I went through when I was young and, and obviously still some of the things that I experienced in my 20s. And some of the names were emotional abuse, neglect, betrayal, powerlessness, shame, humiliation, bitterness, self-reliance, loneliness, distrust, self-hatred, arrogance, internalized rage, fear, self-doubt, and despair. Yeah, there's all these things that had accumulated in my life and, and it really shaped my heart and, and shaped the way 
that I saw life and, and people and, and myself. And it ostracized me from intimacy. It cut me off from connection. It, it disconnected me from the fullness of, of what Christ offers us. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible is in John 10.10. 10, and it says, The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ came that we may have life and have it to the full, that we would have abundant life, that we wouldn't settle for mediocre, that we wouldn't settle for, for a life that's informed by the brokenness of our past. And you know, the enemy wants to use our, our history to hijack our destiny. But God actually wants to, to use our past and redeem our past to give us tools that will transform our future. And as I share just a few of the lessons that, that I learned on this journey, I'd just like to invite the keys up. But there's three main lessons or, or big lessons that I learned. The first one, which is probably one of the hardest ones for me to come to grips with because of my past and because of being a Kiwi and being a male, was the challenge and the necessity of vulnerability. Yeah, vulnerability is so, so important because until we actually open up, which is an act of courage and bravery, we actually don't invite other people and God in to speak to these broken parts of us. It never allows us to enter into the fullness of freedom. And it's very, very true that a lie unchallenged replaces the truth. And it says in uh, John 8.32 that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And so it's not until we bring around mentors or have friends or, or caring family members or counselors or therapists to unpack some of these lies that we believe about ourselves. These lies that are informing our future can we actually be transformed. I think particularly as Kiwis, we're not great at being vulnerable. And I think some of the adages that have become uh, defining features of our culture, like she'll be right, doesn't matter, harden up, are rubbish. Man, we need to reframe that stuff around our culture because that contributes to the sickness of mental illness and, and the, a mediocre life. It contributes to suicide. It contributes to us living a small life rather than a God-breathed life. And even for the men in the room, I find it quite interesting that our cultural conception of strength as basically to hold everything inside, suck it up, and say, oh, I can handle it. What that actually does is it fractures you internally in such a way that it actually makes you weak. And vulnerability is actually an act of bravery 
It helps us be healthier. It helps us be more authentic as men. Can help us be better fathers, better friends. Makes us better leaders. Let's always keep our eyes on kingdom culture and not let ourselves be crippled by some of the cultural uh, unhealthy things in the culture that we find ourselves in. So the second thing that I learned is that change is a journey of learning. And for me, one of my greatest frustrations with my own mental illness in my 20s was that everywhere I went, I found there was a lack of answers. And this lack of answers actually almost cost me my life. I've seen it cost other people their life. Many of us in this room, in our nation, will be affected by the ripple effect of suicide. And it's not until we learn better ways to do things can we actually see transformation take place. And you know, the skills that we have right now, they've allowed us to get this far. But if we want to go to another level, we actually need better skills. We need more skills. Some of these skills are coping strategies. Some of them are better emotional health, better relational skills, better conflict resolution skills. Some of it's having a growth mindset, having increased wisdom, increased spiritual maturity. And I found as I entered into this journey, it was just this process of continually learning through contemplation and reflection, through accountability, through mentoring, uh, through therapy, through counseling, through reading, through podcasting, talking to friends, hearing from pastors, having people speak into my life. Be open. Be teachable. Be hungry to learn. And that can trans have a transformative effect on our journey. Thirdly, is we actually need a tribe of people to be with us on the journey. And I think sometimes we expect to be this, this lone ranger that wants to thrive in the Christian life or that wants to you know, be successful or wants to do this or that. And we become driven by this toxic sickness of individualism. And I think individualism is one of the ideas and beliefs that underpins so many of our cultural problems and issues in the Western world. This self-reliance that I had in my life crippled me. And for me, it was hard to, to be open because I had issues around trust. It was hard to let other people 
help me or, or to invite in teams of people to journey with me sometimes because I had been betrayed, because I had been let down and I had made an internal vow when I was a teenager. I said, I can't rely on my parents. I can't trust my friends. I'd just been let down moment after moment as I was like, the only person I can trust is myself. And that meant I didn't even trust God to the degree that I needed to. And it made me lonely, made me smaller as a human being. It robbed me of contentment. I think it was one of the major hurdles that I had to overcome in the journey of healing. And it wasn't until I invited more people in that I actually began to really get traction on the journey. Yeah, I remember when I was 19, as I had just um, started to get really, really depressed, I went and saw this counsellor and he, he said something profound to me during, during the first session I spent with him. He was asking me about my family and, and asking about my relationship with my parents. Discovered that my relationship with my dad wasn't a great one and that I had fostered a lot of um, hatred and, and hostility and, and had bitterness towards him. And he said to me, you don't want to be like your dad, do you? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be the polar opposite. And then he said to me, let me say something. And what he said is, too many people have this internal projector going in their mind where they're constantly replaying the thing that they don't want to become. And people do this and they say, I never want to be abusive like this parent. And this internal projector's going in their mind and they end up becoming abusive. They say, oh, I never want to be an alcoholic. And because that's where their focus is and that's the coping mechanism that they observed, that's the behaviour that comes most naturally and that they're driven towards. Some people say, I don't want to be violent. And yet the projector screens rolling in their head, images of violence, moments, ways of coping, outbursts of anger. And he said, too many people, they play this screen in their head and they become the very thing that they hate. And he said, you have to reframe that and focus on the thing that you want to become. Because your focus, what you focus on is what you move towards. What you focus on determines your future. And so we actually need models that we do want to be like. Not a preoccupation with what we don't want to be like. And so I made a decision from that moment that I would get around mentors and, and guys who were 
um, who are going for God. I'll get around passionate Christians. I'll get around men who are good husbands because I had never seen that. I'll get around men who are strong leaders, who are good friends, who knew how to pastor people, who knew how to care for people. I got around men who were good parents so I could begin to learn and observe and and heal some of the wounds that I carried and actually see how to do some of this stuff properly. Because I think the most heartbreaking thing for me would have been to journey through life and repeat the mistakes or carry the mistakes that I had witnessed and that had broken me and becoming the very thing that I despised. And so we need better models and we need a tribe of people around us, pastors, friends, mentors, sometimes counsellors and therapists and different people to help us on the journey. Yeah, not only that, I also realize that God redeems our suffering. And I said earlier, yeah, where I feel like I'm at now and still a journey and things aren't perfect. But there's been great progress. And there's been a little bit of a transformation. It was interesting at the end of last year, it's been 10 years since I left high school and I ended up going to our 10th year high school, reu- high school reunion. And it was interesting saying hey to everyone, and particularly some of the people that I hadn't seen in a number of years. And they're like, man, what's happened to Jace? And I was like, well, it started with God. And then it's been a lot of things since. And this last 10 years has just been a radical turnaround and shift. But it was because I was willing to embrace the journey and invite the right people in and surrender these parts to God that weren't comfortable. It wasn't safe. But God can only, well, God will, will only transform those parts of us that we're transparent with. Yeah, God redeems our suffering. If I could invite the band out, that would be awesome. And one question I ask myself on my journey is I feel so broken and so fractured in my soul and my spirit. Brokenhearted would have been an understatement. And I found God can redeem and restore and recalibrate the things in our life that, that are broken. There's a great Christian thinker who I, who I love by the name of Francis Schaeffer And he said the the process of sanctification that is becoming more like Jesus 
can give us substantial healing, but not perfect or complete healing this side of eternity. And I used to ask myself the question, how many of these wounds am I going to have to carry for my life? How much of this hurt from a history is going to be with me for the rest of my life? And I came to the realisation that, well, there's often residue from some of the things that we go through. Significant transformation can take place. And one of the, way God, one of the, one of the ways God redeems our suffering is to use it. To use it to help other people. As so often our, our misery becomes our ministry. The very thing that the enemy uses to break us, God uses to bless us. God uses it to to bless and to help restore and heal and inspire other people. And as Christians, I think one of the most powerful things that we have to offer the world is our vulnerability. Yeah, I think legalism and, and performance gets us on this treadmill where we actually feel like we have to constantly try be good enough. We have to have that like perfect, polished, airbrushed image of being the altogether Christian. And we're all human. Some of us are further along the journey. We struggle in different areas, but we're all vulnerable and we all need Jesus. And I remember when I was early on the journey, I used to feel great shame about not actually having it together. I used to feel great shame about not having this joy of the Lord that's spoken about and that can come and that's a promise that we can work towards and take hold of but that's not always our present reality and sometimes that's okay and we'll go into a moment of worship and ministry time soon but let's all stand to our feet I just want to close on on this point. As as I reflected on my journey and and as I remember a number of years ago crying out to God, God, there's a lot of things I could do and there's a lot of things that people say we should do and like we think is required of us. I was like, God, what do you want me to do? And He just said really clearly to me, just be a beacon of hope. Yeah, we don't have to have it all together, but if we can be signposts that point people towards Jesus and not be the, the perfect fake Christian that people can't relate to, but actually have enough humility to say, oh, I don't have it together, but God still loves me. God still embraces me 
on this journey and because I know He has my best interests at heart, because His principles and His parameters are good, because I love Him and because I want to devote myself to Him, even when I fall short, I desperately want to chase after Him. And God loves us in that place and that love draws us towards Him because He's the realisation of our healing. He's the the anchor point for this journey. And without Him, we can heal and we can change, but not to the same degree. And I know in my own life and, and the lives of some of the people that I've journeyed with, who have been so, so broken by different things that we've gone through in our lives. And man, there's just no way that counseling was going to cut it. There's no way that self-help, that being a bit more positive, that just having some good friends was going to be the game changer. All that stuff's helpful. But Jesus is the game changer. It's the truth and the freedom and the love and the revelation and the discovery that's found in Him that actually leads to more holistic, revolutionary, integrated, compelling freedom and healing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.